Hey friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queens Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community, and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3 p.m. to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions, or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. Thank you, Taiwo. Let me add my welcome to those that have been given. It's really good to see each of you this afternoon. Really glad you're here. This is uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is uh, not really a comforting passage of Scripture, not really an exciting passage of Scripture. Uh, What we have before us this afternoon, my dear friends, is a confrontational passage of Scripture. There's lots of ways to be helped when you think about it. Sometimes you're, you're helped by going away on holiday, having some time to relax and just let it breathe. Other times you're helped by sitting down to a delicious mountain of food and feasting. Uh, sometimes you're, you're helped by uh, not just going to the gym where you could kind of run at your own speed, but being taken to the gym, so to speak, where a trainer is going to get involved and help pace you through some activities. That's something of what we have this afternoon. Not, not a, a very restful holiday by the sea, uh, not necessarily a, a mountain of food that we get to enjoy. Uh, This text is a little bit of a personal trainer session that we get to sit in together as a diverse community of faith, and uh, we get to get worked out together uh, by the Holy Spirit who put this text together. So we bear that in mind as we go. I want to chat with you for just a few minutes on this theme of a community of grace and peace. So here's a question. Can there be true and lasting peace within our communities and culture? Can there be? There's a depressingly relentless cycle of political strife and military conflict conflict between the nations. Religious cultures can never seem to get along with each other. Just name the names and you're left wondering if this question could really be true. Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Sudan, Nigeria, North Korea, Israel, Ukraine. Can there be true lasting peace within our communities and cultures? There's also this issue of constant suspicion and segregation between various communities in our city. Black people and white people, rich people and poor people, the Christian versus the secular atheist, the Muslim versus the Hindu, the right-wingers, the left-wingers, and the no-wings at all. The list goes on. There are tensions between office colleagues. There's tension between family members. There's cruelty and hurt in our homes. Can there be true, lasting peace in our communities and our cultures? Now look, you're in a Christian church this afternoon, so you can guess the answer is yes. (laughs) But we got to be diligent in where specifically we find that yes together. My friends, we're looking for peace, but it won't be found in a new piece of legislation or reform. It won't be totally given to us through things like affirmative action in schools and businesses, though it can be helpful for curbing the effects of sin. It won't come through various strata of critical theories, be they old or new and modern. 
The peace that we are looking for can only be found in one place. And it was just read to us. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Scripture has no problem saying, for He Himself is our peace. He is the one who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. There's other ways that peace can be helped. There's other measures and reforms and actions we can be about. But let's not be mistaken. Peace is only found in one place, and it is a person named Jesus Christ. If we're going to be a church community that represents Jesus Christ, if we're going to be the church of Jesus Christ, then we have to commit not to tear down the walls, that, that not to build back up those walls that He first tears down. And we have to carry within us. Multi-ethnic is not something we read in the headlines and we just want to be trendy with in this church. Multi-ethnic is something we see in the book of Acts and in the book of Ephesians. The church, first church that was born was multi-ethnic. It was gospel-centered. It was intercultural. And if we want to be the church of Jesus Christ, then we need to find a way to move towards that. So I'm chatting with you on the theme then of how lasting peace is possible. Not because I thought this would be a good idea for us this afternoon, but because we're working through the book of Ephesians. And we take the topics as the Holy Spirit cues them. So here we are this afternoon, thinking about what does it mean for us to be a church of people from different backgrounds, different races, different cultures, working together to be a culture of peace. The text of Scripture is going to teach us that impossible enemies can be made more than friends. They can indeed become family members, actual family members in what's called the household of God. This text reveals to us that the cross of Jesus Christ, it offers peace because of what's been reconciled vertically. Our relationship with God, it is the only hope for having reconciled relationships with one another as well. It's been said, God is not colorblind, but He's also not blinded by color. We don't want to be a church where we, we also slip into the rut somehow in the midst of this text where we say, well, oh, I, I, can't, I can't see the differences. I, I, don't, I don't see color. No, no, no. We want to be a church where we see color and we honor. We want to be a church where we see culture and we honor. God is not a colorblind God. God's going on and on and on with prophecy after prophecy and mission agenda after mission agenda. Talking about around the throne one day, there will be a diverse bunch of people from every tribe, race, culture, tongue, background, and nation. So that's what we're driving for. And that's what we have to have our eyes open to as we look in this text. Ephesians chapter 2 has these two glorious buts, and I won't go too far with that. Ephesians 2 early on says, but God, and then later on in verse 13, it says, but now. Last week, we had a look at the but God, now we have a look at the but now. And across the room, maybe we'll even sense the Holy Spirit addressing us. I know you were mistreated, but now. I know you were wronged, but now. Hear this one. I know you feel superior, but now. We want to be a but now sort of church. And this text will help get us there. So I'm going to establish some big ideas for us as we just study this text of Scripture carefully this afternoon. The first thing we see is in these first two verses is that we were once foreigners to God and one another. Paul begins, therefore. Every time you see a therefore, you need to ask, what's it there for? And it leads you back to consider the truths of verses 1 through 10. 
He's saying, considering the spectacular blessings that are ours in Christ, that's everything from chapter 1, we've been brought from death to life, that's chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul says, I want you to remember that you were formerly Gentiles, you were formerly non-Jews by birth, and you were called the uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision. We've got to pause right here and figure out what he's saying. The circumcision, Paul's referring to a ceremony of circumcision of Jewish baby boys, which was symbolic, listen to the language, of being cut free from sin. Now, that symbolic ceremony had become a point of pride or identity for a group of people where they were making other people around them feel inferior because they had not been cut free from sin. Paul's having to write to him and say, listen, that, that, that's actually nothing that you need to be proud about. The sign had become a source of improper pride in themselves and scorn towards other people to where they were trying to get around to be church together and people were feeling awkward. They were feeling a bit inferior. They were feeling like they didn't have what someone else had. And Paul himself, the most brilliant Jewish scholar of his generation, he diminishes the ritual circumcision by calling it, well, that's which just made by human hands. Just puts it aside. It was being accomplished on the interior when what was actually needed was a spiritual cutting free from sin. You might hear that and think, that's just one of those like archaic phrases or things like I'm just kind of wasting some mental energy on at church this afternoon, but it's actually incredibly practical for you and me today. Because we Westerners, we tend to imagine ourselves as entitled to all privileges. Uh, just think about the last time your Wi-Fi wasn't loading. How quick were you to switch off and jump on data, right? It's, I should have it now. This is the kind of people we are. We think all the privileges belong to us. We think we have rights to it all. And Paul is showing us, we actually, there was that time when spiritually we had no rights. We were actually dead to rights. And look at the specific things we were dead to. At one time, my dear friends, this is for all Christians in the house. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, the Bible says this is where you are in your relationship with God today. And it can all change, but here's where you are. We were separate from Christ. Verse 12. Gentiles had no share in the benefits and exciting promises of the great Christ. They, they were separate. They were far, far away. Many people in our city today, they speak of Jesus as if he were merely part of a historical heritage, now largely ignored and consigned to the British Museum. But Paul's writing to a group of people and tell them, you need to remember, there was a time when you had no rights. You, you, you were a goner. You had no rights. He goes on in verse 12 to say you were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Gentiles had no right to citizenship among the people of God. They had no covenants. They had no access to the ethical laws. They did not have His powerful protection. They did not have His faithful provision. Western pride is often offended by such exclusion, but this is God's world, so we can't complain. No matter how vigorously we want to be about it, it should be another way. This is how God's chosen to set it up. Number three, we were foreigners to the covenants and the promises. There's so much going on here and we can't get through it all, but God made one marvelous gospel promise to Abraham that his descendants would enjoy the blessings of the kingdom of God. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. 
through a long, long line of events we know without Jesus, we who were Gentiles were strangers and foreigners to the covenantal blessings, and all we once deserved was the judgment of God. There's just one more, and it's this, with that we were at one time without hope and without God in the world. Long ago, the Greek writer Theocritus once wrote, hopes are for the living and the dead are without hope. Many centuries later, the face of death remains as overwhelming as ever. Uh, Dylan Thomas once wrote those words that for some of us is only familiar because of the movie Interstellar, where he says, do not go gentle into the good night. Rage, rage against the dying light. W.H. Auden speaks of the hopelessness of believing grief with those words, stop all clocks, cut off the telephones. For some of us, we live in such a reality of hope that it's hard to imagine this. For others in the room, we know what it's like to forget hope, and when we hear it, we're encouraged. But we remember, God has promised to work in our lives, and it will surely come to pass. And the author of Scripture is saying to us this afternoon, you just need to go back and refresh that. There was a time when you did not have any hope. So without Christ, we Gentiles, we were without hope for eternity, without God in this world. And actually the key to being able to have peace with one another is remembering where we're coming from. And that's what Paul takes us through, but thankfully he doesn't leave us there. And our hearts can begin to rise again this afternoon. Chapter 2, verse 13, but now... And now everything has changed. But now we were far off have been brought near. It's the second big idea. Jesus brings us to God and one another. Praise God. We don't have to stay in this far off condition. No, no, no. Jesus has actually brought us near. Paul has already described the mighty reconciliation of sinners, people like me and you, to holy God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And now he starts working out the implications for that vertical reconciliation He's now going to start moving through the room and say, there should be no division here. There should be no division here. There should be no division here. This is what God has done in the relationship. If God can overlook our sin, if He can do the work of making things right here, that can be now be a power source for us to be about that good business with one another and indeed the world at large. So He takes us there and He shows us first in verse 14, He Himself is our peace. Verse 14 is a celebration of Jesus. Three times in this section of Scripture, Paul intensifies his idea again and again and again by saying he himself is our peace. Who not only gives peace, but he himself, he is the peace that we need. Amazingly, Jesus Christ has united the two most deeply separated categories in history, Jew and Gentile, into one people, And it's all part of his grander program of uniting all things in his son, Jesus Christ. So what this is teaching this afternoon is that Jesus Christ is writing a new humanity called Christian. Without him, the hostility that was between Jew and Gentile and every other group of people would still have a go and it would still loom large. But now, Jesus is making a new people called Christian. In terms of the barrier, the barrier or the dividing wall of hostility that you see right there in verse 14, 
It, it was between Jew and Gentile. That barrier was the law of Moses. And yes, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and prophets. So how has Jesus abolished something he said he would never abolish? It's because he has fulfilled it. He has fulfilled it in full, and he has specifically fulfilled the Israelite civil and ceremonial laws that would have separated people from each other. And now he's saying, those have been fulfilled. There's no need to be held back from one another. It's beautiful. The Old Testament that contained God's law, it promised a prince of peace who would be greater than Solomon, the king who established earthly peace with his neighbors. Paul proclaims a gospel of peace. And that Christ, He is our peace, the origin of real peace in our lives today. So let me begin applying some of this to us in the room. Deep and lasting reconciliation within our marriages, within our families, and within our communities was never found under Roman military domination. It was never found under the Pax Romana. It was not in a social solution. It was in deep inner peace that was only to be found where there was spiritual dependence upon Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, Governments were certainly welcome to make rules and other people welcome to put social constructs together to try to like hold back and curb the tremendous effect of sin on the world. But those things, they never bring peace. They, they slow down sin and sinners. Real peace is a person and his name is Jesus. The peace of Christ then is not just a negotiated absence of conflict. It's the positive presence of harmony and flourishing that comes through the Spirit of God flowing through the Prince of Peace. The death of Christ, it's ended all exclusions then. Because we're not saved in different ways. Some of us aren't saved because of race and others get saved because of works and others get saved because of class. There is only one faith, one Lord, one baptism. So think about this, by, by the Father making Jesus the hostility, think about this, the Father slew the hostility both objectively and subjectively. Objectively, our Father slew the hostility between Him and us through the cross, our record of hostility. And let's just be really real this afternoon. Every racist comment this room has ever managed to utter, every bitter thought this room has ever managed to utter, every bit of exclusion, conscious and unconscious, every sin of commission and omission against someone from another race, gender, class, or cultural identity, the Father has slain that through the cross of Jesus Christ. And you don't have to walk around with some sense of guilt that you have to pay this down before God when God says, I can clear the debt through faith in the Son. Now there's some working it out with each other that we can get into, and the text is indeed leading us there. But objectively, let's make no mistake, the Father looks at people who used to be racist and He says, you're no longer that anymore because of the cross of My Son, Jesus Christ. And then subjectively, God slays the hostility by seeing ourselves and by seeing others in light of the cross of Jesus Christ, it diminishes the hostility. It's hard to have preference against someone when you remember it took the Son of God on a cross to save you. Turns down the pride a little bit, doesn't it? We're not as self-righteous as we were before we looked at the cross. 
The gospel destroys all self-righteousness that could exist because he himself, he is our peace. Now, Jesus is reinventing the human race. He's going to get into what's happening now. Verses 15 to 18. I'll move quickly. In verse 15, to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Your Bible just said Jesus is creating a new group of people. He's reinventing humanity. When you become a Christian, you are spiritually reborn as a part of a new creation and a new human race. In verse 16, we see we are reconciled to God and to each other. So church isn't a place where people that are going to be like really strict to their tribe or really strict to their class or really strict to whatever socioeconomic matrix conditions they're going to put together. And I'm just going to kind of pull into church. I'm going to plug in. I'm going to get a download. I'm going to get filled up. And I'm going to leave without having to interact with all those other people. According to this text, that's, that's just not how it's going to go. Reconciled to God and we're reconciled to one another. Um, I don't even know how to talk about this, so I'll try. There's an intense Greek word here which means super reconciled. And I realize how cheesy that sounds, but that's just what's happening here. And the, the author is saying, the Apostle Paul and the inspiration authority, the Holy Spirit is saying, you have been super reconciled to one another. And it's like, just say reconciled. He's like, no, he can't. He's saying, you've been like abundantly reconciled to one another. Why? Because the Father is abundantly satisfied with the Son paying the payment through the cross. Now, people that were once foreigners to each other, we, we can't just be like, oh, yeah, we're kind of good now. No, we can be super reconciled to each other. What a sweet joy this is. Can our hearts start to taste this? Can we, can we just get past all the other constraints and conditions this world tries to put around this? Can we just receive it? as one of the massive ramifications of the gospel. Verse 17, only Christ can bring this peace. It's a big idea. Look at verse 17. You only get this through Christ. He came and He preached peace to those who were far away. He came and preached peace to those who were near. So the Bible says Jesus Christ is the beautiful evangelist. He is the peacemaker and He is the peace proclaimer. After his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, he repeatedly appeared to his followers and he said, peace be with you. And that was far more than a greeting. So two things all of this means for us. Number one, Jesus is the route of salvation. There is no other path. He is the way. The other thing this means for us, there is now no room for racial pride. There is only space for glorious reconciliation, according to Scripture. Verse 18, finally on this, by the work of the Son... The Son preached to our hearts by His Spirit. We can now enjoy constant access to our loving Father in prayer. Big idea, we all have equal access. I'll meet some people that clearly know a few things about God, and they'll say, oh, well, you're a pastor. Would you pray for this? And I'm like, I have no clearer route than you do. Anyone can offer this up. You, you're just as good as me before the Father. No, no one, no, like... There's not a red phone or a whatever colored phone in glory where the Father's just waiting. Yeah, 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 I'm hearing the prayers of the people. And whenever that thing rings, He answers that ahead of other people. He, he is ever capable of hearing all the prayers from all His people offered throughout all times and all places. And He does not listen through a color-coded filter or a finance-colored filter or a class-coded filter. He just hears His children.
So our recognition that we needed the death of God to be reconciled is what empowers our humble willingness then to get reconciled up with one another. And the reconciliation of sinners to the Father is the source, my dear friends, the source of being reconciled to one another. I just want to pause here and just try to speak to something that might be setting up on some of us. Some of us might be hearing this right now. Don't worry, I'm not going to go long. Um, some of us might be hearing this right now and just be thinking like, surely he could do better than this though? Because you're just looking around the room, it's like, yeah, 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 reconciled. Like, these are my brothers and sisters. You're telling me. Like, I'm fine with that. But you could be thinking to yourself, surely, this is a bit of a motley crew, okay? Brothers and sisters, they're my family. I can talk about my family like this. A bit of a motley crew. Like, Father, what are you doing here? You, you, you might be sitting there thinking, like, there's not just people here. There's some very broken people here. And we're going to gather. And we're like, Father, if this is really your plan and your program, um, wouldn't you want vast list of A-list celebrities and successful superstars? Um, instead of meeting in a crumbly school hall, um, I don't know, let's hire some stadiums and just pack them full of kind of a who's who of London. Why us? Why this? Like this looks incredibly humble for what the text says he is actually doing here. But in this text of scripture, and you're going to hear it again in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul reveals that God's extraordinary passion is for ordinary people and ordinary churches. This is how he's going to show the manifold, the multicolored wisdom of God to the world. It's going to come through environments and settings like this. It's not going to be A-list celebrities who've all been like appropriately exercised, fed, dieted, and groomed, filling up a stadium. It's going to be through us. It's going to be people like me who talk like this. And it's going to be through you. This is how God's going to show up His glory to the world. And this is what He's doing, my dear friends. He's making us members of the same family. This is beginning to conclude, so if you've been sleeping, lean back in for this. We are welcomed into the family of God. You, my dear friend, however far off you feel, Ephesians 2.19 says you are welcomed into the family of God. You are welcomed. More than being welcomed by me or whoever will ever stand at the front of this room with the microphone, you are welcomed by the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. You are welcomed into the family of God. As rebels, we were all once foreigners and strangers, but now we share in Christ's spectacular privileges. All the joys that belong to Him will one day be shared with us. So I want you to think about this with me. Let's get real practical. We are not illegal immigrants dodging the border guards. According to this text of Scripture, we are fellow citizens. And think about how beautiful this is. Your kingdom passport has been stamped through with the king's blood. You are entitled to all the new creation paradise privileges. So now we are no longer French and Nigerian, and American, and Ghanaian, and Jamaican, and British, and Portuguese, and Italian, and Indian, and American, now, according to this text of Scripture, we're Christian. And the homelands we long for are no longer the green fields of mighty England, or the vast plains of Africa, or the white beaches of Australia, or the redlands of South Africa, or the mountains of India, or the open plains of the American South. We are citizens of heaven, traveling away from those things we once used to identify with, and we are doing gospel business in the world on the way to our eternal rest together. 
The heavenly church is certainly not a neat box of identically wrapped, perfectly shiny chocolates. We're kind of like a bowl of different licorice pieces just kind of hanging in there waiting to the end. We're a new humanity. It means new in time. We are the latest version of humanity according to this text of Scripture. May that fill you with dignity as you walk around this town in the next week. And my friends, we are founded on the gospel of Christ. The heavenly church expressed in all its local congregations on the earth is founded upon the Bible. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone even there in chapter 2, verse 20. So Jesus is the one that's going to give decisive shape to the whole foundation of the building. And Jesus is the one, he's the firm cornerstone, he's the tested cornerstone. The heavenly church and every true local church, we, we stand on this, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, on this rock, on he himself, the church is going to be built. Jesus taught in the sermon that the person who builds their life on his teaching is like a wise person who builds their life on the rock and not unstable sand. Christ is the ultimate wise man building his own house on the rock of the gospel. And may I just say this, in case we ever feel the need to adjust this, the foundation is finished, the foundation is sufficient, and the foundation is saving, and there's no need to tinker with it. Finally, we are constructed as a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. You see this in the last two verses. I'm about to finish. The heavenly church is the home of God, and we are the dwelling place of God. We were symbolized in the Old Testament by a temple. This was one time a tent, then at one time it was a temple, and it was fulfilled in the incarnation as Jesus Christ. He took on flesh and he tabernacled among us, John 1.14 teaches us. He declared that his temple, his body, would be destroyed and it would be raised up in three days again in John chapter 2. And now, as we are united by faith with Jesus Christ, every Christian, to every Christian is a temple, Every church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and it is a true wonder of the modern world today. Ephesians 3 is going to say, you want to know how, what God's doing? He's doing this. And it, it, it doesn't have to be in some super awesome medieval-looking structure to be amazing. This is how God is going to show the world his manifold, his multicolored wisdom. It's this. Take heart, my friends. He is doing something beautiful. It takes the eyes of faith to see it and to apprehend it. But take heart, my dear friends. He is doing something indeed wonderful among us. May I just say, beginning to conclude this, you are welcomed into the precious family of God. So on the basis of this text, love the people around you dearly. We are all welcomed here. No one came with VIP access. No one is superior in here, so love one another deeply. You are welcomed here. You are being built upon the foundation of the Scriptures. So let me say this to this entire room. So listen to the teaching of Scripture faithfully. This is where we're attuned. If possible, we bring Bibles. Many of you today, you have some sort of note-taking device available. And you're like really paying attention to this because the Word says you are being built upon the foundation of the Scriptures. So even as we get in here, we do things to prepare ourselves for this moment. We do things to steward this moment well. We don't distract one another and bother each other with text messages. We stay focused in here. And we do things to come back and dwell on this. You are being founded upon the Scriptures. According to this Scripture, this scripture we take that seriously. And finally, my dear brothers and sisters, this text says you are constructed as a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit of God. 
but we ought to be holy in how we behave. The world ought to be able to glance over here and say, let me see what God's up to. Oh, that? Hmm. Where's the power found? How are we going to live this out? Because that, that does feel pretty tall. I mean, that's, that's a tall order right there. And you're listening to this, it's like, man, that's great. The world would be a better place. Where in the world do we get the resource for that? Well, my dear friends, it's the very first verses that Tywo read for us, verses 8, 9, and 10. We must be a people who rests in His grace. He Himself is our peace, and from Him flows a mighty river of grace. This gathering of diverse people in the heavenly church, according to God's plan in chapter 1, verse 10, it has massive implications for how we're going to be church and conduct ourselves as church on earth. This means that if we're living faithful to this text of Scripture, we will not be content if we look around and only see people that look like us. That's good. You come in here week in and week out, you look around, it's like, I just wish there were more people that looked like me. That is a good thing. Don't you stop the work of God in your, in, in your life with that. You keep praying into that. You keep bringing that. We want to make disciples of our own nations. No, that's not what he said. He said make disciples of all nations, teaching all people to obey God. That's what we want to be about together. He did not teach us to make disciples of your own kind. He said, make disciples of all nations. So the world could know the manifold wisdom of God. My dear friend, as you hear what this text is calling for, who people who've been saved by that glorious cross of the Son, you rest assured the way to get there is by resting in His grace. And for every hurdle that needs to be cleared and every I'm sorry that needs to be offered and every hug that can be extended here in the next 30 minutes of our time together this afternoon, you rest assured Ephesians 2.10 says, He created you for such good works. These were planned out before the foundation of the world that you could be about this work with one another. That stuff doesn't save you. That stuff is evidence that you've been saved. So let's be about it with each other. Let's, let's, let's prove up our salvation to one another, if you will. By the way, we hug one another. Uh, there's going to be some, some in here going to lay a kiss on each other. Luis is about to jump out of his chair right now. We're going to look one another in the eye. We're going to show honor to one another. We're going to recognize we have been created in the image of God. There is more dignity in that statement than any government could ever, ever encourage. So Natalie and the band, come on up here. It's about time to respond. Let me, let me just try to land this in your hearts with just a few sentences. Our salvation is entirely God's good and generous gift. My dear brothers and sisters, receive this. You receive this gift through faith. God's grace, God's grace to us and in us is the only way we can stand before God. We don't stand before God as some reward for being who we are. Therefore, we cannot include and exclude one another based on some other form of criteria. The criteria is the cross of Jesus Christ where He slew the Son for all the racism, for all the ethnic pride, for all the grudges, for all the past hurts. The Son has absorbed them. There's nothing left for us in this room but glorious reconciliation with each other. And for you who feels like, eh, that's... I, there's just a lot of stuff in my heart. Let me just say this. You are not saved. You will never be saved. You will never be kept saved based on your performance. 
So however long this is going to take for you, know that. The Father looks at you and He says, I I got you. However long this process of reconciliation is going to take for you particularly, grace is going to be the thing that keeps you the entire time you're in it. We don't have an achieved identity as Christians. We have a received identity as Christians, given like a gift, and that is the only thing that can not only change our performance, but give us a deep and lasting joy. He himself is our peace. And from him, all the grace flows. So if we feel like we need some grace with other people, we get alone with him. We say, fill me again, God, because it is hard. I do feel mistreated. I do feel overlooked. I do feel hurt. Allow the one who is full of peace and full of grace to fill you once again. Very practically, my friends, we have a prayer and ministry team who's over here. If the Spirit nudges your heart at all, as someone who needs to be reconciled or someone who's desperate for reconciliation, or if the Spirit touches your heart in any way at all through His Word, you come forward for prayer. Let me beg you, do not leave this room without receiving prayer if the Lord is prompting you for such. You come over here. For all of us together, an opportunity to stand and to sing and to celebrate the grace of our God through Jesus Christ. Let's stand, let's pray, let's sing.